everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today with my co-host Michelle. Hi Michelle. Hi Stephanie. And we have our producer Jimmy who we've dragged into the recording studio again. Yet again, yes. <laughs> and the reason that you two are here today um, is because you're interviewing me. Um, we are I have done stuff, I have done homework that you guys haven't. So you're going you're gonna to grill <laughs> yeah, me. Well to be fair, it. it's homework that you enjoy. Oh, it's, it's totally, <laughs> this is like relevant to my interests, big time. So, why didn't you ask me questions? <laughs> Away we go. Mary, Queen of Scots. Yes. Stephanie. Yes. What have you to say about Mary, Queen of Scots? <laughs> well, well, so first, I think we better introduce Mary, Queen of Scots for those of, you, those of us who don't know that much about her. So, she was a Queen of Scotland, um, as, as the title suggests, in the, in the um, 16th century. So, she was a cousin of Elizabeth I. And she became Queen of Scotland at six days old, which is um, not a time in which you were prepared to, you know, make decisions about governance. Um, and she was married off um, quite young into France and she became the Queen Regnant of France for a time. Then she comes back to Scotland. Um, there's lots of civil war in Scotland, etc., etc. She ends up escaping Scotland and going to England and becoming involved in many and various plots to overthrow um, Elizabeth I because many in Tudor England believed that she had a more rightful um, claim to the throne than Elizabeth I um, due to various factors, one of which is um, her Catholicism. So she was a Catholic queen, whereas Elizabeth I was notoriously um, Protestant, thanks to the um, English Reformation that happened under her father, Henry VIII, um, all that really properly happened under her um, brother, Edward VI. So Mary, Queen of Scots, was a kind of thorn in Elizabeth's side for a long time until finally Elizabeth, well, her, her advisors, um, Cecil and the like, amassed evidence that she was involved in a conspiracy. So she was um, in basically under arrest in England for 19 years until Elizabeth executed her. Finally, which was a decision Christ that, the yeah, it was a gruesome end, and Elizabeth wasn't very happy about doing it for various reasons. One of which is, if you start chopping off the heads of queens, then people start, yeah, <laughs> looking at you, yeah. And I mean, you know, Elizabeth's mother, who is my lifetime obsession, and Lynn had also been executed. She wasn't really jumping at the thought of executing another woman, but no, in the does, end, it happened. It does raise an interesting point because. You've revealed to us that you have a unholy fear of beheading. Yeah, I do. And yet the two figures you're most fascinated about are both beheaded. I know. I don't understand. Um, <laughs> psychology. I don't know. We seek out that which we fear. What, what, what do you sort of put down to the current interest in Mary Queen of Scots, given that we've got movies? We've got a movie, play, yeah. Yeah. Um, Actually, royalty in general with mm -hmm. um, the, the favourite, yeah, and the women, crown. and particularly women monarchs, women in power. Um, so, what? I think that well, first, first of all, Mary Queen of Scots has always been super popular, super um, interesting to people. It's not. I mean, we've we've seen a kind of resurgence just because there's the new film, but there's never been a time when Mary Queen of Scots wasn't interesting to white varieties of people. But you are right to say that there is an interest. In Queens, and I think that interest sort of um, runs parallel in both the popular kind of general audience and also in academia. So there's a huge academic interest at the moment in thinking about Queens and the power that Queens could have and had. And that's because I think we're interested in women in power. 
and the ways in which women could exercise power and couldn't exercise power and the, the, the kind of unique dimensions of female power. So that accounts for the academic interest, but I also think that accounts for the, the popular interest as well. You know, we're so used to seeing men in power and we're only now starting to grapple with the idea of women having political power in some kind of um, sustained way. I mean, we've had a, we've had our first female prime minister in Australia, and look how that went. And um, you know, we've had the Hillary Clinton being in America, and um, we're still grappling with the idea of what it means to be a woman with power. So it's almost an analogous way of teasing out this still yeah. real uneasiness yeah. around what it means for a woman to be power in power, despite you know, sort of. Um, feminism and despite you know sort of supposed notions of equality yeah it still seems to be something that is touching a raw nerve in, in many respects and yeah. particularly because um, it's in some sense I guess it's easier to pick out in times that were more overtly patriarchal mm. where things were a bit more stone you know a wife will obey a husband mm. um, you know sort of uh, women are inferior you know mm. so those very strong lines allow you to sort of see what might be more implicit today. yeah yeah that's right and I think that the 16th century is particularly interesting because there were a bunch of women rulers um, across continental Europe and, and in um, in England existing at the same time. So it's a kind of interesting kind of fulcrum for thinking about women in power. Um, but and, and yes, you're right, it's, it's kind of more explicit the way in which um, there's anxieties about, you know, can a woman be married and also be queen because she's, you know, if she's married and she's a queen regnant, then she has a kind of weird role because her husband's supposed to have power over her, but yet not over the kingdom. So those those kinds of anxieties were much more explicit whereas I feel like we still have those anxieties but we just don't talk about them in or we can't articulate yeah, them because yeah. we don't have the, the, the sort of the nice clear rules that allow yeah, you to sort right. of fight back but there's an overhang isn't there it's that yeah. invisible overhang of those attitudes and that idea of like the woman the woman in power is less kind of um confronting when she's very feminine right but at the same time feminine is coded as lesser yeah, and sexuality comes yeah. into it in yeah, such yeah, a way, yeah. um, you know, because I, I think in terms of what constitutes a woman's power over a man um, is often portrayed as being her attractiveness to him, particularly, in yeah. which sort of it makes or teases out his Achilles heel. Um, and so, you know, on one hand, the feminist just decries that, but when you look at the, the actual working nature of so much of society today, it's, it's, it's very hard to say that, that that idea isn't still holding sway. Well, exactly. And I think Mary Queen of Scots is an interesting figure to look at that because she's always been a character. Uh, I'm using the word character quite purposely there because I think she's become an, an image in a kind of popular imagination that's quite distinct from you know the real person insofar as we can ever know. Um, She's been a character that's very much associated with sexuality, with maternity, with being very overtly feminine um, in ways that Elizabeth wasn't, mm. um, and so quite self-consciously tried to move away from. Um, and part of that is the way that we've thought about these two monarchs who existed at the same time. And part of that, um, part of that is their own creation, but part of that is like constantly remaking the past in our own image. So I've been doing a lot of work on. Um, historical fiction from about this period, so I'm working on um, historical fiction about Anne Boleyn. And it's, it's incredible to me 
the extent to which we just transform the same story, the same events into whatever is most kind of relevant to us at the time. <laughs> so, you know, the way that we see Mary Queen of Scots now and Elizabeth I now is, is, is mu- as much about us as it is about them. So given that, what would you say about mm. the movie the film. and the emphasis at, that they sort of place? Where, where, did they, where did they take their direction from? Well, they're, they're obviously trying to be very feminist in the way that they present, especially Mary Queen of Scots. So they present her as very woke in this kind of um, very 21st century way. So um, she has this kind of enlightened idea of rule. She's very tolerant. Um, she she catches her husband. It's a much more sympathetic portrayal. It's very sympathetic. I don't think that's unusual in representations of Mary Queen of Scots. But so she catches her husband sleeping with another man, and she's like, "Oh, you know, that's fine. That's you know, I understand that like homosexuality is, is so fine." Second, her second husband. He was her second husband. Yeah. Um, Darnley. Darnley. Yeah. Um, she's she's you know into like there's a moment in which she she catches her secretary cross dressing and she's like oh you know you can be whatever you want to be it's this yeah. moment of like you know I'm so really I'm really au okay with like yeah, trans and, and rights yeah, you know, you know the, the Catholicism <laughs> would have been completely comfortable with the yeah yeah perhaps. yeah it's a bit it, it's very yeah. subconsciously like trying to make her work and trying to make her very subconsciously kind of feminist and progressive yes and yet emphasising everything to do with sexuality without necessarily yeah. thinking through the power, the hierarchical power um, notions. Yeah, there. well, I mean, what kind of irritated me is, like, it's this very surface kind of, um, you know, Mary Queen of Scots was so progressive and so tolerant and so, you know, such an enlightened ruler and she's, she's doing queenship in a different way. And yet the entire film, for me, falls short because it, it again falls into those same kind of ways of thinking about Elizabeth and Mary. So Mary is the kind of sexy, um, passionate, um, sexual, maternal kind of queen. And Elizabeth is this, you know, buttoned down, almost caricaturish. She's very she's she's denied her, her sexuality, she's denied her, her her maternity or her capacity to be a mother. It wasn't strictly true either, was it? Because she had her, her lover and Well, um, that's debatable. But um, you know, well, but like she had certainly had, you know, close relationships with men, especially um especially Robert. Um but you know, whether that became sexual or not is you know, most of history and probably it didn't. Um, but, you know, and there was there's this self-conscious kind of strategy behind Elizabeth not marrying and not having a child. You know, she was being really besieged by all those around her to get married and to provide an heir and she didn't want to do that for very obvious reasons. One being what happens if you marry a foreign king and bring a foreign king into power over England. Does that mean England gets conquered by whoever the foreign king is? What happens also if you marry a Englishman? And he claims And he claims precedence over you as his or wife. Or just tries to control or you tries to control you, yeah. Your husband. Yeah, exactly, which is exactly the problem that Mary faced in her marriage with, with Darnley. So she has she's got a problem with marrying a foreigner, she's got a problem with marrying an English person who also she has control over, you know, an English man would be a subject of hers and the power dynamics would be complex. At the same time, she's a woman who's seen her father murder her mother, murder another one of her stepmothers. She's had another stepmother die in childbirth. She's seeing all around her all of the different kind of struggles faced by women in marriage, in motherhood, and she said, no, I'm opting out, right? And she resists and resists and resists marriage and naming an heir because the first thing that happens when you name an heir is people start to get distracted 
and start to cultivate the air, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they know that it's 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 forward planning, good forward planning to you know get on the air's good side. And so she's worried that the air, whoever that might be, will get the attention or get the the, um, the support of the courtiers, right? She's a woman in power that's still kind of a really complex thing, really shaky thing to negotiate. So the movie doesn't really grapple with all that. It just suggests that Elizabeth is this like masculine woman who has denied her her femininity and and he feels really kind of crappy about that like there's this scene in which um actually the scene in which mary gives birth to james um she's giving birth and then elizabeth is sort of sitting knitting and the knitting is like between her legs where the baby would be and there's it it's just like so avert it makes so avert the lack of a child and i just think oh god like so Are we really still it's doing almost this? Almost a stereotyping. Of yeah, you. yeah. And and I think the best historical fiction actually manages to mount a critique against the contemporary yeah. times rather than suggest that we've got it all answered. Yeah. And as long as you know, sort of Mary's okay with uh, people cross-dressing, yeah. then she's okay. Yeah, that's um, right. Which is very, very simplistic, really, isn't it? Exactly. So it's like you know, on the surface, it's trying to be very, very progressive, but underneath, it's actually just reinfirming and reinscribing all of these ideas. It's not giving us anything new about either Mary or Elizabeth. And, and again, it's just reaffirming that idea that she's a lesser woman or she hasn't fulfilled her destiny as a woman because she hasn't given birth. And reinforcing the normative norms from today. Yeah, um, that's right. Which are remarkably similar. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. ones from the past. I know. It's so terrifying. I know. Ways. I was thinking, actually, when I was thinking of watching, when I was watching it, um, about Julie Gillard's RuPaul. Remember that? She there was a photo there was an interview oh. with Julia Gillard years ago and it went into her house you know one of those like lifestyle profile thingies and she had an empty fruit bowl in her house and that was like taken up as like a symbol of like oh she's God. got no family she's, yeah she's fruitless she's barren you know she's got no family to nurture she's like she's like half a woman because she hasn't kind of um, fulfilled that part of of her destiny. It's, it's that Lady Macbeth syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yet you sort of see story. There's so much potential in stories like Mary Queen of Scots mm. and Elizabeth mm. for actually challenging these sorts of ideas yeah. and replacing them mm. with much more complex and actually ultimately very powerful women. Um, yeah, I, I think there's so much, like, it's a fascinating, great story. You know, here's two women all of a sudden being in charge, in command, on the throne of these two countries, on the same island, mm-hmm. right? They're related to each other. Fantastic. They look like each other. They, you know, the, one is Catholic, one is Protestant. I mean, it's it's almost absurd, right, when you think about the fact that this, this actually happened. One kills the other. You know, it's, it's just the recipe for drama. And so... I don't understand why the movie couldn't do something more interesting. Shakespeare have done something fantastic. I, I guess you know, like it was a little yeah, yeah. close. He couldn't really. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, really yeah. yeah you know, that would off have been his off in his head. But you know, you can imagine yeah, yeah, yeah. with that wonderful dualistic, um, yeah. you know, sort of the potential there for exploring binaries. Oh my god, you know, it's begging to be done. Well, and yeah, and, well, and other people have done much more interestingly, mm-hmm. going back to Schiller in the 18th century. Anyway, yeah, go on. No, I was thinking, um, well, there is talk that uh, Shakespeare did, in a way, do it uh, in the character of Lady Macbeth and um, some of his other plays. He sort of references some of these events um, in a very uh, subversive 
way because obviously you couldn't do it with James you know, mm-hmm. being yeah. hey your mum hey your mum was this you know, yeah. so, so or think, before before Elizabeth died exactly yeah, like, yeah so he was kind of throne, yeah, which is a bit of a shame I think because you know, yeah. yeah, I think he would Maybe be absolutely, just, absolutely fascinating yeah, yeah, yeah. but then that begs the question so how does that then compare with the plague if you saw it so I also went to see recently which is part of this kind of Mary Queen of Scots explosion um, Mary Stewart um, at the Sydney Theatre Company um, and that was a rewriting by Kate Mulvaney of Schiller's um, 1800 play, Mary Stuart. Um, and I really enjoyed that much more than the film. Um, I should say, though, that there were aspects of the film I enjoyed. I enjoyed the performance um, of Shersha Ronan as Mary. I thought Margot Robbie was a bit out of her depth as Elizabeth, perhaps. <laughs> or she just didn't kind of, I don't know, it didn't quite gel. But I enjoyed the play a whole lot more. And that was because it it it's still kind of... Um, aligned, I suppose, roughly with that kind of Mary as this very passionate woman. Elizabeth is much more kind of repressed. But it complicated that picture. It made um, Elizabeth, at first she appears to be this kind of comedic caricature. She's quite funny. She's quite broad. It is a quite kind of laugh-out-loud performance at first. But it does, as the play proceeds, it does manage to really demonstrate how difficult Elizabeth's position was in many ways and how she enjoyed power at the same time as she struggled with power which I think is quite um, true to the historical record and um, with Mary Queen of Scots it, it demonstrated aspects that we know from, from history are, are true to her kind of character which is that she had an extraordinary kind of charismatic power over men um, that she found it quite easy to sort of bring men over to her side. I think she's like 11. Yeah, which is quite tall for that. That's tall for anyone. That's tall for any woman, yeah. Oh, you know, like she's dying. And I mean, like, she's a giant for her yeah. time, really. Um, so she has this quite, like, magnetic appeal that we know from the kind of the sources that is quite real. Um, and so it, it demonstrates her as being this kind of magnetic woman, but at the same time it complicates her, it makes her... Um, sympathetic but in less obvious ways in the film the film is very kind of blunt in it's kind of you know mary is super feminist therefore she's sympathetic the film the 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 play is much more nuanced in the way that it thinks about about mary i think and one of the great things too about the play that i have to mention is that they somehow managed to integrate a dog a real dog <laughs> into the action Crazy. and it's the it's the oh. best behaved dog i've ever seen Anyway, that, sorry, just, that, that just reminded me of um, a scene from Shakespeare in Love, where the um, from the main character, the, the manager, always says, you know, oh, says to Shakespeare, you make sure you include a dog. You know, yeah. audiences love a dog. You know, I know. whatever you write. This was a really well behaved dog. He came on being held, and then he walked off stage. It was amazing. Yeah, anyway, some serious faith. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, because I was going to say, because I think one of the things that uh, we grapple with today is just how radically different subjectivity would be because yeah. I mean both yeah, yeah. those women were, were sort of ingrained from the time they were born with a sense of it being their absolute God-given destiny well, to rule. Mary would have been, Elizabeth mm. wasn't. Less so. But yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's such a different, like, yeah. it's very hard in our day and age where we're sort of so, um, you know, you are what you want to be. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah, and it's quite a different yeah. way of thinking about it. Like Mary has this real conviction in her life, both historically and in the fiction, that she has the right to rule, that she is she is a queen and therefore she is a different kind of class of person, which to us is sits uneasily, um, but absolutely was something that she believed in. Elizabeth was different because um, Elizabeth, you know, it was unlikely that she would ever be 
um, the Queen Regnant of England. You know, she had to scrap and she had to fight and she was imprisoned by her sister and, you know, she was made illegitimate by her father and, you know, her mother was murdered when she was two. So, you know, it, she had a quite difficult path to the throne. The film doesn't really acknowledge that. The mm. film presents Elizabeth... And it did this in the marketing too, which was very strange. It was immediately kind of left upon by historians. Um, it sort of assumes that Elizabeth has this kind of like unproblematic road to the throne, that she was just sort of born being powerful and that there was no kind of struggle and she was just this powerful woman who was always powerful. Well, even those currents of, you know, sort of the, the, the Reformation and, and, you know, sort of the fact yeah. that there were people who were absolutely convinced that as a Protestant she was an idolater. Yeah. So, or, you know, vice versa. So, so yeah. I mean, these are sort of um, currents that are very, very hard for us to sort of pick up on unless, you know, they're incorporated in, in the, 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 the treatments in some ways, aren't they? Yeah, and I think that... The movie and and the play both go some way towards kind of acknowledging the complexity of the religious situation at the time, but I think again the play did that much more successfully. The movie kind of had David Tennant in this remarkable beard; he's unrecognisable except for the voice um, as um, John Knox, and he is you know fulminating in the background about you know Catholics being evil and so forth. Um, but it's not really done in any kind of um, intelligent way the kind of religious discussion is is confined to that the shots of him preaching whereas in the um in the play it's much more woven through this idea of um mary as a catholic symbol and elizabeth as a symbol as a protestant symbol you know gloriana the fairy queen that kind of image of, of elizabeth um as this kind of protestant icon is, is much more nuanced in the play i think the play just handled everything better um it hand, and it also handled the, the meeting. Because one of the, the kind of um, really controversial parts of both the film and the play, although obviously the film is what's being discussed kind of wide, quite widely, is the meeting between Elizabeth and Mary. Because historically they never met, right? Which again is kind of incredibly fascinating that these women mm. whose lives were so entwined never met. Um, and they didn't for all sorts of reasons. But the historians sort of get a bit upset when you have meetings play out in historical fiction i don't mind i don't care that they make up meetings because i think it's interesting to think about what would happen if they did meet and i mean realistically if you've got like shersha ronan and margot robbie you know two of hollywood's young hottest actress um actresses in the movie it's inevitable that the producers are going to want to you know put them in the same scene and see what happens so that the fact of a meeting doesn't bother me but what happens in the movie is they meet in this kind of um little dilapidated little shed and there's all these hangings like diaphanous hangings um that they're walking through and so they sort of never kind of in meet face to face but they're sort of looking at each other through these diaphanous hangings and walking through and and it's all sort of supposed to be very kind of visually kind of dramatic but it's just like why don't they just stay still why are they walking around like generally when you meet it's someone like you don't like dance moments. yeah yeah it was i'm like if you're meeting somebody and talking to them you don't like just wander off past a veil for no reason <laughs> So it was just kind of a bit awkward. Yeah. And Maybe they're trying to go for the whole metaphor. Yeah, they they were, I think, but it just was a bit eye roll. Yeah. yeah, it was. And, you know, halfway through, like, Elizabeth removes her wig and says, you know, I used to be so jealous of your beauty, but now I see that you're just, you know, you've got no power and so forth. And it, it's not, 
it's not handled particularly well and that the conceit for like why does history not know that they met um, in the in the movie they was try to explain it. they try to explain it and they try and they say that um, she they vowed to each other they would never reveal that they met that it was supposed to be like they subconsciously kept it secret yes. from history yeah, it's and what's the reason for that because if people knew then on either side it would be a cause of consternation it's not really dealt with very no, convincingly, no. especially I think that Elizabeth is more worried that people will know that she met Mary, whereas Mary's not worried that people will know. But yeah, it's supposed to be like a, a, a giving in to Mary on Elizabeth's side is the way that it's presented. In the play, however, they keep it really ambiguous about whether it actually happens or not. Because they have this, it happens within the context of this scene in which um, Elizabeth's quite drunk, she's at a party, it's a kind of masquerade thing. Um, it's not clear what's actually happening or what she's imagining is, ha is happening. And she's quite obsessed with Mary, Queen of Scots at this point in the play. And that's true. She becomes sort of quite fixated on her because of all that she represents and the kind of danger that she represents. Um, and so in the play, she, you know, she's in this scene. She's, it's a bit unclear what's actually happening. Is, is it real? Is it not? And then she has this really drawn-out interaction with Mary. It's not clear whether that actually ever happened. It's not, it doesn't really answer the question of did Mary actually find her way out of imprisonment, which I don't know how that could possibly be. Mm -hmm. um, it sort of presents it as a quasi kind of hallucination. Um, so it's, it's interesting because you're never quite sure is this actually Mary or is this what Elizabeth fears Mary is. Mm -hmm. And they have an um, interaction that starts out quite nicely I suppose like they find common ground in their situation as women in power um, they you know end up sitting with each other and saying you know you're the only person on earth who possibly understands what it is to be a queen which is true really um, or at least in that part of the world um, and so that they sort of find common ground but the kind of interaction deteriorates from there and then you know in the end uh, Mary ends up yelling things at Elizabeth about her greater right and all of this and Elizabeth's kind of checkered family history. So it, it's, it's an interaction that both shows you the potential for them to find common ground as women in power and also the reasons why that fractured as well. And because you're never given that, that, that concrete answer of is this a hallucination or is this not, although it seems kind of obvious that it has to be a hallucination because, you know, Mary can't, like, wander out of prison to Elizabeth's court willingly. <laughs> um, it, it makes it much more about the kind of psychological impact that Mary has on Elizabeth and vice versa. Look, it's, it's, it's actually fascinating, isn't it? Because, I mean, you know, sort of in, in particularly today's time, it sort of, you know, really allows you to think through the complicity that actually supports power. Mm. Because, you know, on some level... Uh, Mary's supporters, Elizabeth's supporters, they all have to believe in mm. a notion of power and therefore in respecting Mary or Elizabeth, they have to actually, in some sense, subjugate themselves to that notion of power. And, and pre be prepared to kill or die. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet at the same time, um, that's so deeply troubled by that profound sense of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, male superiority and, you know, the fact that, you know, sort of this idea that on one hand power isn't gendered, isn't this, mm. isn't that, and yet at the same time um, is only possible with that 
complicity between others who are willing to grant power because those men ultimately granted power in those situations. Yeah, and the play does that really interestingly because one of the um, the kind of most visible supporters of, of Mary is actually tattooed with pictures and, and sayings and so forth of about Mary all over him. So he's like his body has become this kind of shrine to Mary and he obviously worships her as a kind of um, female idol and her beauty has something to do with that. Mm. Her beauty is constitutive of why he's so obsessed with her. Um, whereas with Elizabeth, it's not as kind of sexualized, um, but it's more about that image of Gloriana, the Virgin Queen. And those are some constructions that Elizabeth and Mary fed into, but they're also constructions that are dependent on a kind of male relationship with, with women that, again, is still filtering through the body. Yeah, yeah. Look, do you know, I think what I love about it, because I just, you know, sort of being listening agog as, as you talk about it, but it's, it's just that idea that in that... Um, you know, sort of historical analogy, what you see so visibly is the way that those men are actually in cages of their own making mm. because it's a patriarchal society that's sort of created its own sense of power. But given those circumstances, they have actually put themselves in their own cage. Yes. And, yes. you know, and I think that's sometimes something of the tension that you see happening today. Mm. And yet it's harder to define because it's all, you know, all of these things are so much more implicit uh, and, and often invisible. Um, so it's, it's, it's harder to articulate that way out of that cage or why the cage is a problem. Yeah, and I think that's that's quite true, um, I think, in, in thinking about the way that people reacted to Elizabeth and, and Mary as sovereigns versus the way people react to women rulers today, um, women leaders, political leaders today. I mean, we had, you know, people like Knox, um, at the time, writing his monstrous, um, his blast against a monstrous regiment of women, or whatever the title is, I can't remember. Um, don't hurt me, historians. Um, <laughs> you know, he he is writing about how women's female power is wrong and against the law of nature, against God, and you know, saying that quite explicitly. Now, think about Hillary Clinton or Julia Gillard. We had a lot of people respond in that same way, but coding it in different ways, right? Thinking about like. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton is this kind of shrew, is this Medusa, um, you know, this dangerous, deranged woman who is going to, you know, cause the downfall of America, or in Julia Gillard's case, is this, you know, barren, um, cold woman who hasn't experienced life like, re quote-unquote, real women, right? So it's it's the same discourse, it's just manifesting itself in different ways. And as you say, because it is the 16th century and because it is all on, on the surface, um, People were saying all of these things. It is against the will of nature for a woman to be queen or to be, you know, female king. Queen as in the one having the power, not the queen as in wife of the king. Um, we don't say that today, but we do say that today. Yeah. Just and in other ways. Like it's really, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Because, yeah. you know, it's your own logic that's sort of getting fed back at you, isn't it? Because yeah. if A plus B equals C, you know, yeah. you can't also not equal that. So yeah. it creates this wonderful bind. Yeah, precisely. Um, and and I think that the, the play really grapples with those questions much more interestingly than the film. The film never rises above kind of suggesting that because Mary and Elizabeth are both women, if only they could just kind of get together and hug it out, it'd be yeah, fine. Yeah. Which, it's like, nauseating. it's nauseating and I find it really offensive. Way, yeah, actually. it is, it is patronising. It's enraging. Yeah. And, and the film kind of um, insinuated that Elizabeth's problem was that she was jealous of Mary. 
which she so was in some ways, but that wasn't actually why she executed her. <laughs> you know, had to do with, you know, actual conspiracies. <laughs> and she kept her alive for quite a long time. She kept her alive for she, quite a long and time. And she fought to keep her alive. She did, and then and the and the, the movie doesn't really grapple with that. The, mm. the the play does, in that you see her her struggle with the decision to sign the death warrant and also her belief that signing the death warrant wasn't actually a final decision. Because, you know, notoriously Elizabeth signs the death warrant after keeping her alive for two decades in prison. In, the, in what sort of conditions? They started out, no, 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 they started out really well and as, as Mary kind of kept doing stupid plotting. things, plotting, <laughs> exactly, they got worse from there. Yeah. But they started off in real comfort and like retinue of people that, that all those conditions gradually got less and less and less as she sort of behaved badly. But... Um, <laughs> You know, she and Elizabeth signs the death warrant, but she's like not quite wrapped her head around the actual death. So she she still thinks, even after she signed the death warrant, that it won't be carried out or that she can, you know, prevaricate still. And the play gets to that really interestingly. She has this moment where um, a, a a servant comes in and she signed the death warrant and she gives it to him and he's like, "So do you want me to carry this out?" And she's like. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> and you know, tries to you know abdicate responsibility to the people that are actually trying trying to carry it out. And get, and it, it cleverly picks up that yes, she's trying to defer responsibility and not take on the responsibility for the death. But at the same time, she knows that she's playing that game. So she's both consciously not taking responsibility, while at the same time she knows that she's deferring responsibility. So you get the complexity of, of um, Elizabeth's character. Yeah, I just thought the play was really good and the movie was really poor. And, you know, I want to see really interesting um, representations of these women because they are fascinating women. I mean, Elizabeth was like the greatest, one of the greatest queens of, and, you know, shepherd of this, yeah. the golden age of England. I mean, this is the age of Shakespeare. This is the age of, you know, the Spanish Armada. This is the age of colonial exploration. Now, we don't see colonialism as a good thing anymore, but for them, they saw it as, you know, taking England out into the world, okay, and discovering the world beyond beyond Europe and, and, and the trend going to the Americas and that. Well, in terms of empire. Yeah, empire building. You know, yeah. and if we think about the, the sort of the the weight that the Roman Empire... Um, yeah, that's right. Still and, they were, and, they were, and they were creating themselves in the image of the Roman Empire, right? The British were, you know, the, the inheritors to Rome's greatness and that's how they thought about themselves at the and time. And that's very much the sort of the, I guess, the, um, the, the legacy of Elizabeth is yeah. that if she's not actually seen in the same um, dimension, in the same dimensions of the Roman, you know, things like the Roman Empire, then history is actually belittling her. Yeah, I mean, she's incredibly important. And just thinking about like what what women in power look like, and you know, she she is the template from which we look. You know, we look to Victoria as well, but we look to Elizabeth before then um, as a way of thinking about what it is for a woman to rule. And so, you know, her and her the interaction of her story with with Mary, I think, is, is hugely significant. And, you know, it should be interpreted and reinterpreted, but I don't think Mary Queen of Scots does anything to re to think about that in a more interesting way. I think the, the play, which unfortunately I think is over by now, but um, may come back in whatever iteration, um, does do a much more interesting job. And actually, I, I know it's off topic, but I think The Favourite does a lot too to think about queenship in a much more interesting way and it's a fantastic like campy weird um grotty um way of thinking about history mm. um that i haven't seen before it's like a period film that you've never seen before like it's just so subconsciously gross and 
um, revels in its kind of weirdness, and I love it. I thought it was great. Go see The Favourite, it's great. Okay, yeah, because I haven't seen it yet, and I think yeah, and, and there's and like Anne is the like the queen that we never talk about, yes, because she's between Elizabeth and Victoria, and she's seen as a little bit of a nothing queen. Although that's not fair, she had you know fourteen pregnancies and one child that came resulted who died at ten. So you know, like fourteen or fifteen, um, you know, she's a very tragic overlooked, neglected figure. And The Favourite is, is a really good rethinking of, again, of a, of a queen whose legacy is, is kind of complex. Mm -hmm. So don't go see Mary Queen of Scots, see The Favourite and try and catch the Sydney Theatre Company production of Mary Stuart if it comes back, is my take home message from today. And queens are great. And I think we have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Stephanie, that was so fun interviewing you. I could talk about Queens for like six years, so. Mm. All right, thank you. Okay, so I guess I'm back in my role as, as host now. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I know this is all very weird. Okay, so this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic. Um, if you could send some um, suggestions for future shows our way at fromthelighthouse.org, that would also be fantastic. And we'll see you again in about two weeks. Thank you. Bye.